Well, it's great to be with you. Welcome to everybody online. And as Sarah said, we are in our second part now of our new series, Eyewitnesses to Jesus, or My Story. And what we're particularly looking at is those people who are in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, the followers of Jesus who were named. There were many people in the New Testament who had miracles and they turned up and they're part of the story, but they weren't named. We don't know who they were. But there were also those people who were named, and why were they named? And often this was because the people who were named became eyewitnesses to the life and the claims of Jesus. And so today we're looking at two named people. You will have heard them. We're looking at James and John. So let's uh, look at James and John. Now, James and John were amongst the most prominent of Jesus' disciples uh, alongside Peter. In fact, they were called pillars of the church. And these men were present with Jesus in the most significant and important, momentous times of his life. It says that when Jesus went up a high mountain, he took James and John and Peter with them, and that's when he was transfigured and his whole body became as lightning and brilliant light and his, his garments became radiant and God spoke and says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And the disciples looked and they were speaking to Elijah and Moses on the top of the mountain. How cool is that? And, but it was only James and John and Peter who Jesus took to experience that. When Jesus lay, um, raised Lazarus, uh, uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead, this little girl who died, it says that he took Peter, James, and John with him. Only the three. Don't know what the, other would do, what the others were doing. Maybe they're having a McDonald's or something. Chilling out. Having the afternoon off. But Jesus took these three into the room to witness him raising the dead and how he raised the dead. When he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took James and John and Peter a little further, a stone's throw away, and it was there that they witnessed him praying and agonizing with what he was about to go through. And uh, as it were, it says that he was in such distress that he was sweating drops of blood. And so we see James and John alongside Peter, but I'm not going to focus on Peter, just James and John today. They were witnesses with Jesus of his greatest moments and his darkest trials. They were amongst his closest friends. They were amongst the first of the disciples. And they were called to follow Jesus the same time as Peter and Peter's brother Andrew. So let's have a look at these two brothers, James and John, and their calling, and then we'll have a look at, at them, a bit about their background, and see what encouragement we can get from their lives. It's entitled, Jesus Calls the First Disciples, if you're reading it from the Scriptures, but uh, that's not actually part of the Scriptures, that's just a title that the uh, creators of the New Testament put in, but just to make us know, these are the first disciples, but when we get into the story, the inspired word of God, it says this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother, Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out, and you'll fish for men, or for people. 
At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were, both, they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Okay, so who were James and John? Well, we can read from this passage of Scripture. They were the sons of Zebedee. Now, not Zebedee from the magic roundabout. I don't know if any of you can remember seeing that. I have to be a certain generation to remember it. But they were sons of Zebedee, and Zebedee was a fisherman. And Zebedee probably was a businessman as well because it says he had boats, more than one, and hired hands or hired servants. It was, so he, was, he had staff. And he was in partnership. He had a business partner. And Zebedee's business partner partner was Peter and Andrew. He was probably, therefore, a man of means and of substance and of influence. He would have been well-known in the fishing town on the shores of Galilee. His partners were Peter and his brother Andrew, as we mentioned, And uh, they got called to follow Jesus the same time as Peter and Andrew. It says in this, it says, when Simon Peter saw this, that was the big catch, the miraculous catch, where Jesus said, hey, you've been fishing all night, chuck the net on the other side. And they did so, and they've been all night catching nothing. And now in the broad light of day, in a few moments, they caught a catch of fish that was absolutely astonishing. And this caused Jesus, uh, Peter, it says, when Simon saw this, he fell at his Jesus, he fell on, at, at Jesus' feet on his knees and says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and his co- companions were st- astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. You see, they had a little deal going on here. They were business partners in the fishing industry. So Zebedee, the father of James and John, now interestingly enough, Zebedee is mentioned in every single one of the Gospels. Now the thing about, I think Matthew mentioned this last time, the Gospel writers, they had an economy of expression that was absolutely brilliant. They did not waste a word, and they chose every single detail and word and name and person so meticulously, so the fact that they mention Zebedee in the four Gospels is a very, very interesting feature. It's a lot of reference. So there's great significance in this. So he's probably well-known. He would have been a man of prominence, probably of some wealth. The other thing to to note is this. Um, And all this builds up, of course, to the fact of the credibility of their claims that we saw Jesus saying this. We saw Jesus doing that. We were there when he raised the dead. Oh, come on. You must be kidding. Nobody can raise the dead. No, we were there. Well, who are you to say, well, I'm the son of Zebedee. Oh, well, you know, Zebedee. These people were known. It wasn't like nameless witnesses. Where's the evidence? How can we fact find this? How can we source the evidence? There were people we could go to and have a conversation with to check it out. There was credibility. They could trace the history of these people. And um, the disciples, James and John, interestingly enough, were probably very young indeed 
when Jesus called, not just James and John, but all the disciples in Jewish tradition, uh, a person who was going to be called to be a disciple of a rabbi, normally was between the age of 12 and 30, but usually it was less than 20. So most of the disciples, it is not unreasonable to suggest that most of the disciples, when Jesus called these guys, were probably teenagers, late teenagers maybe. Now we tend to think all the disciples, because we've got all these, you know, stained glass windows and paintings, and they're all balding men with gray beards and sticks and wrinkly faces, you know. And we can, we, when we picture these guys, we think of them really old. But when Jesus called them, they were young people. Now, John, for example, John that we're talking about, brother of James, um, it's thought that John wrote the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos when he was 66 years old. Sorry, 66 years after Jesus had died. So 66 years after Jesus has died. Work that out. How old must he have been when he was called? He, he, he's he, he's going to be a teenager. I mean, he might have been... I mean, if he was called... How does this work out? Uh, I'm not brilliant at math, so this is a bit risky. But if he was called when he was 20... He'd be 86, wouldn't he? If he was 76 when he wrote this book, he was a call when he was 10. Is that right? <laughs> it's young. Anyway, he was young. He was a young person. Certainly a late teenager, could have been 15, could have been 20. Anyway. James and John, they had a mum, and her name probably was Salome. It says this, many women who were there watching from the distance, speaking of the cross of Jesus when he was crucified, these, these women had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee. Now, it doesn't mention that Salome was the mother of Zebedee in Matthew's account, but in Mark's account, he goes through the same order of people, but gives a name. So let's look at Mark's account. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and cared for his needs. They're actually saying the same thing, but on this occasion, he adds the name. Who is this woman of Zebedee? Many people would say that Salome is the woman of, Ze of Zebedee. So who's Salome? Well, she was at the cross when Jesus died. She was one of the wider groups of Jesus' disciples. Remember, Sarah spoke, Sarah spoke about the women disciples, and it says that, Jesus called his disciples together, and out of that group, he chose 12. And later on, he sent 72 others out. And we know that when the Pentecost happened, there were 120 people up in the room receiving the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he says he visited 500 others. There were a lot of followers of Jesus that were called disciples, 
But sometimes we just focus on the 12 disciples who became apostles. But there were many, many disciples of Jesus. And some of those disciples, some of those followers of Jesus, as we've read just here, were women. And so she was one of this wider group that followed Jesus. And as a group of women, she actually, with others, funded his ministry. That's a thought, isn't it? Funded his ministry. And Salome was at the tomb of where Jesus was buried. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome brought spices so that they could anoint Jesus' body. Do you know, she was in the thick of it. So we got Zebedee, most likely married to Salome, who were the parents of James and John. So what are we saying here? We're saying that James and John came from a well-established family in Galilee. Many people think it was, they either lived in Bethsaida or Capernaum. Their father and mother were well-known. They're mentioned in the Scriptures. They would have been well-known amongst the community, probably had some wealth and prominence. And Jesus, highly likely, most probably, would have known this family. And he would have known of them even before he called James and John to follow him. He, Jesus lived in the same area. I know he was born in Nazareth, but later on he moved to Capernaum, which is uh, in the Galilean area. So the call of James and John probably didn't come out of the blue. And this gives the reason why the whole family didn't protest it. Can you imagine, right? Jesus rocks up. Your sons are your business partners. Key to the business. Suddenly, this religious bloke turns up and says, follow me. They leave the nets, leave their dad, leave everything at a moment's notice. And I think the dad probably would have gone, you what? <laughs> I mean, how am I going to fill the space? What are we going to do? But he didn't protest. And that's probably because it didn't come out of the blue. Jesus, the Jesus movement in the early church was highly relational, highly relational. He probably knew them, and he called up two brothers, James and John, and another two brothers, Andrew and Peter. And then Zebedee is mentioned four times in the gospel, so he's part of the gang in the New Testament. They all know about him. And Salome followed Jesus, supported him, no doubt with the support of Zebedee, and she was at the cross and at the tomb. They were all involved. A highly relational movement. So let's just settle this for a moment. Christianity was never supposed to be institutional. It was always supposed to be a relational movement. It still had organization. It still had leadership. Jesus is the leader. It talks about James and John and Peter became key leaders in the church. It still had commitment. It still had responsibilities. It had a cause and a vision, and they were in it together. But it was highly relational. It was like family. Like family. And what is the church? It is not an organization alone. It's definitely not a lifeless institution. It's not a building. We meet, but it's not a meeting. 
We gather, but it's not just a gathering. We do these things because we are family. And they were in the family business as fishermen, and it was an easy step for them to enter into another family business, God's family business, with Jesus as the senior partner. And so we see through the story and through the life of James and John that he was very, very close to them. John is known as the one who Jesus loved. There was a relationship there, a connection there, like a best friend kind of deal. Now, God loves us all, but Jesus in humanity, in his humanity, he is God, but in his humanity, he's living out a real flesh and blood life here for all of us to see how life works. And in life, you have special relationships and you have wider relationships. It doesn't mean that God loves us any less, any less committed, but Jesus had in intimate friends. That's why he went to Lazarus's house and he spoke to Mary and Martha. He had friends. He was a real flesh and blood human being. And he lived that flesh and blood life on our behalf so that we could know how to live it. As well as dying on the cross for our forgiveness. He had a best friend type deal. They become, these guys became amongst the most influential leaders in the church. But, like us all, they really had some rough edges that had to be knocked off them so that they could become the leaders and the Christ followers and Christ lovers and people lovers that Jesus wanted them to be. So, first of all, let's look at some of their flaws as we move on. He gave them a nickname, and often Jesus would give nickname to people, and sometimes it would be around their character. So these guys were called James, and, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. He gave them the name Bonagerus, which means sons of thunder. Probably they had something in their character which was a bit thunderous, and we get an insight from this, is one time Jesus is going to Samaria, and the Samarians are rejecting and hostile to Jesus. So, it, this is what it says. At this time, they, uh, as, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, so this is, this is in the final stage of his ministry of three years, and it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of them who went into Samaria village to get ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? And Jesus rebuked them. Basically, Jesus says, listen, guys, you're not even on the same page. We're not on the same planet here. But the, the disciples, James and John, they wanted to nuke these guys. Now, what was going on? Now, if, if I had been Jesus, I would have been thinking, oh, no, I've got a problem. I've been training up these guys to leave the church when I've left. I'm coming to the final year. I'm only do, I've got three years to do this, and then I'm going to go die and go to heaven. I'm at the end because he's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. So we're talking in a couple of weeks now, maybe if days or so, I am actually going to be arrested, crucified, and I'm off to heaven. And I'm leaving these guys to take over the church. These are the ones who've got to communicate the love and the compassion and the mercy of God to the world. 
and they want to nuke everybody who's hostile. And if I was Jesus, I'd be thinking, I've got a problem. Have I made a mistake? Did I hear right? What are we going to do? But astonishingly, John, through the course of his life, as he begins to write his books, he is known in his reputation, his legacy, that John, who wants to nuke, is known to be the apostle of love. The amazing, transformational power of Jesus from this to that. The contrast. Sons of thunder to the apostle of love. And his books in the New Testament, Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, they're full of, of love, love, love. God so loved the world. He gave his only forgotten son. Love, love, love. This is how you shall know my disciples, that you love one another. May they love, you know, and, and then John says, if you don't love your brother or sister, how can you, who you do see, how can you love God who you haven't seen? Love, 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 love. He's banging on about love all the time. What an amazing transformation. So, he changes heart and changes life. But not only did they want to fry these guys in Samaria, they wanted to exclude all opposition. Like a business, see they're business people, and they were canny, and what do you do with the business? What do you do if you're a canny business people? Well, <laughs> you know, I suppose if you're in the cutthroat commercial world, you squash them, don't you? You squash your competitors. So th this is what James and John wanted to do. Teacher, they said, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told them to stop because they weren't one of us. <laughs> and Jesus said, don't stop them. Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. So they wanted to nuke them. They wanted to exclude the opposition. There was competition. There was threat. There was insecurity. They didn't want anybody else on the action. This is a million miles from what Jesus is like. And these are the guys who are in the inner circle of leadership. <laughs> not only did they want to nuke them, did they want to squash them, but they wanted a place of power. They were political, conniving, manipulative, wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. Look at this. James and John, sons of Zebedee, came up to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. See, that's really crafty, isn't it? That's really, you know, we, will you do something for me? It's like when people say this. Um, are you doing anything on Thursday? And you think, oh, <laughs> if I say yes now, what am I going to be asked to do? They, 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 were really, they were really trying to wheel and deal and get a yes from Jesus before they knew, before he knew what they were going to ask. But he didn't fall for that, did he? He said, uh, well, what do you want me to do? Mm, okay. Uh, they replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left when you're in glory. Or some person says, when you come into your kingdom or when you come into the place of power. Woohoo! You don't know what you're asking for, Jesus said. You can drink the cup I'm drinking from and be baptized with the same baptism I'm baptized with. Uh, 
we can, they answered. Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink with and be baptized with the baptism I drink with. And then he goes on to say, but who sits on my left and right is not for me to say. It's designated by my Father in heaven. So they wanted power and position and influence. And they were even going behind the other disciples back to get it. When the other disciples heard what they'd done, they were really miffed off with them. They, they, they really had a go at them. It says they were angry with them. They said, you what? You're cutting us out? What's all that about? I wonder how Peter felt. I mean, he was part of the trio there, the key leadership group that Jesus was training up, and they cut Peter out, went behind his back. Nasty, eh? Not the uh, sort of heart and attitude that you want to be in the first century church of a Jesus movement. Jesus had to get this political, competitive, ambitious, power-hungry, thirsty heart out of them. And he did this by taking them on a journey where basically says, look, you can be baptized with the same baptism as me. And basically what he's talking about is suffering. He says, I can't give you a position, promise you a position of power, but I can promise promise you sacrifice and suffering, which actually is the door to leadership. John Maxwell said this, one of the world's greatest leadership mentors and coaches. He says it takes sacrifice to make you a leader and sacrifice to keep you as a leader. That's what, is, that's what leadership is. Leadership is not about political or institutional or organizational power. People who have true leadership, true influence, are people who serve. I was very interested to notice how the leaders around the world made comment about Queen Elizabeth, who in her jubilee, who talk about her servanthood, and because of her servanthood, she actually had influence. She actually doesn't have any political power at all. She's a figurehead. But because of her servanthood, she had influence and equity with the most powerful people in the world. And let we have just seen, on paper, one of the most powerful people in the world resigning this week because it's perceived that the agenda hasn't been around serving others, but the securing of power at any means. And it has caused leadership to be lost. And yet somebody who doesn't have power politically, the queen, for the whole of her life has grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and grown in leadership influence. Leadership has everything to do with sacrifice, not position or power. And note this, note this. This is so important for us to understand that Jesus did not rebuke James and John for their ambition. To want to have influence is not ungodly. We are made in the image of God to rule, it says. Human beings are made to influence and care for others and the planet for their well-being and good. That is not ungodly. It is the approach and the means and the motivation that we need to check in our heart. So Jesus didn't rebuke them for ambition, but he channeled their ambition into sacrifice 
for the benefit of others. He challenged it into servanthood and a willingness to sacrifice. James was the first martyr. Herod martyred him early on in the book of Acts. This key player, this key leadership influencer was the first martyr of the New Testament church. And John was exiled on Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. And in his opening lines of the book, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Christ. This is because he's exiled. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Sacrifice. He channeled it into sacrifice. But their sacrifice caused them to become even great influencers through martyrdom and even through exile. So what encouragements can we take from the life of James and John? Well, Jesus doesn't call us to follow and serve him because of who we are. He calls us to follow and serve him because of what we can become. Isn't that great? It's not because of who we are. It's because of who we can become. If you were looking at a tick list, James and John wouldn't have got past stage two. (laughs) They wouldn't have made it. But he could see who they could become. Dale Carnegie, he was the person who wrote influencing people through um, making friends and influencing people, a classic book on leadership through actually um, serving the well-being of others. And he wrote Influencing People Through Public Speaking, another fantastic book on how to connect with people and communicate to people for their well-being. He set up the Dale Carnegie Institution, which produced more millionaires than any other person at his time in his life uh, that uh, existed. And somebody asked him this Question, Dale Carnegie, you've produced more millionaires than anybody else in your generation. What is your secret? And he said this simple thing. I heard it, and I've never forgotten it. While others look for dirt, I look for gold. That's what Jesus does. He looks for your gold, and he looks to bring it out. If he was looking for dirt, Peter, James, and John, they'd still be in the boat. But he looked for gold. He says, follow me and I will make you. I will make you something. I will transform you into something as you follow me. Because I can see the gold, the potential. And Jesus has desire and power to transform us. And this doesn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight with James and John. But let me just say this one thing as I begin to close. The blunders... And the failures did not disqualify them. Woohoo! They did not disqualify them from being Jesus' apprentices. Jesus didn't write them off, and he doesn't write you off. So you don't write yourself off. The change came over time, not overnight. The change came over time, not overnight. It came as they followed Jesus, it came as they listened to Jesus. 
It came as they were challenged by Jesus. It came to being close with Jesus. These were the closest disciples. It came through learning and observing and copying Jesus. And it came through serving Jesus. These what brings the change. These are the change agents. Shall I repeat them? It came over, it came over time. It came through following Jesus. It came through listening to Jesus. It came through being challenged by Jesus. It came to being close to Jesus. It came to learning, observing, copying Jesus, and it came by serving Jesus. And over time, they came absolutely transformed into a new type of person. And we can experience the same. We can know the transforming power of Jesus in our life from selfish ambition to serving others, from anger and being thundering to loving Christ and loving mercy and loving giving mercy. Have you noticed how instinctive it is to be vengeful? Somebody might say or do and immediately... Dallas Willard, who is a phenomenal philosopher and um, theologian, he wrote in his book, uh, basically it, it's, a, whole, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a treaty on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, through Christ we can become a people that don't need to forgive because we cannot be offended. Do you want to be that type of person? You don't need to forgive because Christ has worked in you so much that you never take on offense. That's what a disciple of Jesus is. That's why he died upon the cross. That's why he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and that's the person that Christ has earmarked you to be. He who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of your son. That's where you're going. That's your destination. And that's the journey that Jesus has called us to be on. That we may truly be image bearers, ambassadors, representatives, and rulers of Christ with him in the kingdom of God. So they turn, so we can know what it is to turn from being thunderous to loving mercy and Christ-likeness. And we can know what it is to have the joy and the privilege of being close to the heart of Jesus. And even like John, maybe we're in a restricted place, in a place where we don't want to be. Maybe it's some far-off island of our experience. John was physical called Patmos, but ours might be an island somewhere in our own experience in Swansea, but we're locked up in it. But even in that place, we can have a revelation of Jesus that is out of this world. Out of this world and makes it all worth it. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for the wonderful calling and journey and history of James and John and Zebedee and Salome and these name people in the Bible that are there so that we can gaze upon their lives and know, gosh, if you did it for them, there is hope for me. Thank you so much that these people, their starting place isn't so far that we go, well, no wonder, they're amazing. Look, look who they are. No, they started out in a place like us. 
with a lot of work to be done. And yet you and your grace and your power transformed them wonderfully. And we just want to say, Father, you've done it for them. Do it for me. Do it for us. And give us grace to continue to follow and brushing ourselves down when we fall. Not to disqualify ourselves and not to be too introspective and help us to see the gold that you see in us, not the dirt. And help us to keep following you, knowing that the destination you have ordained for us, you predestined us because we put our faith in you to be like Christ. And that is where we will be. And we thank you for that. Amen.